This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Uh, now, Preet is one of those fortunate people who knew where he wanted to go in his career and got there. After law school, he worked in private practice for six years, then later served as uh, chief counsel to uh, Chuck Schumer on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, But what he really wanted was to be an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. As Preet writes in Doing Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan is a storied institution established a century uh, before even the Justice Department itself was set up. Over the years, it's been responsible for prosecuting every type of federal criminal case. Today, it employs more than 200 lawyers and, and about the same number of staff. Preet went to work there as a rookie prosecutor in 2000. Nine years later, he became head of the office, a position he held for seven and a half years until March 2017, when he was abruptly fired by Donald Trump. Now, it turns out for a long time, Preet had actually been thinking of creating a a kind of guide for young prosecutors, a guide, as he says in his preface, uh, not so much uh, about the law as about how to find the right way to do the right thing, based less on legal texts and treaties than on real-life human dilemmas. So that's what he's tried to do uh, in doing justice, which one reviewer described as as a combination of memoir and ethical legal manifesto. But the book is not just for young prosecutors. Uh, Preet aims to make many of us outside the justice system more familiar with the inner workings of investigations and trials, which have become, of course, so much a part of our national discourse these days. Acknowledging up front that justice as a concept is broad and elusive, Preet doesn't advance any grand or novel theory, instead drawing on his personal experiences and legal cases and writing in a very conversational and accessible style. He sets forth his thoughts and stories on what justice is, how the justice system succeeds, and also how, at times, it fails. I should note that Preet wrote this book while engaged in a number of other activities since leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office. He's a distinguished scholar in residence at New York University School of Law. He's executive vice president of Some Spider Studios, a media and entertainment company co-founded by his brother. And he presides over a very popular weekly podcast, Stay Tuned. And Preet will be in conversation here this evening uh, with a, a, a very uh, talented journalist, uh, Biana Golodriga, uh, a CNN contributor who's worked previously for CBS, ABC, CNBC, and Yahoo News. So please join me in welcoming both Preet and Biana. Another city, another rock star. Round of applause. Welcoming Preet Ferrara. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for coming, folks. These are the days of our lives. So what many of you don't know, unless you were also watching on your phones, but Preet literally was on CNN just 10 minutes ago. I had to interrupt Wolf Blitzer and say, I have to go 
Garcia, um, and we uh, hightailed it in a car over here to, to speak with you tonight. Um, but wow, this is very timely. Yes, which work of nonfiction do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so unlike others... The other one's not a bestseller yet. No, but everyone's talking about it. And not everybody, even though some claim they have, not everyone has read through it. You, however, have. So I have. My, mine is completely unredacted. <laughs> so that's, you'll see. And of course, we're all talking about the Mueller report. Um, what did you make of, let's, let's start with the, the, the morning, before the report came out, Barr's press conference. What did you make of that? You know, so I didn't like the press conference. Uh, <laughs> that's all I know. So, look, I thought, it was, I thought it was odd, and I've been one of these people, maybe incorrectly, and if you listen to the podcast, you've heard me say this, and if you listen to the Insider podcast, Ann Milgram and I uh, have both said, and Ben Wittes, who's a friend who also has a great podcast, you know, took some comfort in the, in the fact of uh, Bill Barr being someone who's an institutionalist, who's you know, somewhat advanced in his career, and said you know, pretty persuasively and credibly, that he wasn't going to be affected by politics. He doesn't have any other chapter in politics that he cares about. And he, his will was never going to be overborne, and he's never going to do anything he didn't think was, was correct or right to do. And then he keeps doing these things that, that don't seem quite right. And today, uh, you know, starting with last night, the fact that he was having a press conference in advance of the report being available to anyone, and then deliberately deciding not to make the report available to anyone until a full hour after the press conference ended, even though he's already had the chance on at least two occasions, if not three, to provide a preview of the report, it didn't seem right. It, it, it looked more like an effort uh, you know, at PR than a dispassionate sort of presentation of what another member of the Justice Department decided to pen and put forward. And then the way in which he talked about uh, the report I, you know, I agree with those people who said he sounded a little bit more like the president's personal lawyer than the attorney general for the country. And then you really get the feeling that it wasn't the greatest, I think, most um, forthright press conference in the world once you read the report. And I'll just give you one example of that. He kept saying at the press conference this morning uh, these words that the president likes to use, uh, like a mantra, you know, no collusion. And it seems like there's some kind of you know, odd, non-virtuous feedback loop between the president and Bill Barr, where you know, the president says spying, Bill Barr says spying, and the president raises money off of this accusation of spying when it doesn't seem that that's true. And the same with no collusion. And the reason why the no collusion remark twice this morning was odd, when the attorney general is, even though everyone is going to get the report shortly, summarizes once again section one and section two and he would say in other words the special counsel found no collusion the special counsel if you read the report mentions the word collusion a few times pretty much strictly in the context of saying we don't know what collusion means collusion is not a term of art it's not a legal phrase this is what we looked at we didn't look at whatever people think collusion is so it was odd for a man of law who's uh, the chief law enforcement officer in the country who was like pretty pedantic about language and rigor based on my experiences with him is now resorting to what looked like catchphrases 
that the president can use to his heart's delight when we can all read otherwise. And knowing now what we do, I mean, if you go back a month ago where the Mueller report was submitted, two days later, Barr releases his memo, the four-page memo, where he focuses on Russian interference in U.S. elections. He focuses on the president not being charged or not having enough evidence for both collusion and obstruction of justice, right? And so that's what we're left with. He testifies before Congress last week, says, I'm not going to answer any questions about the Mueller report until it's out. So it's out. And people are raising the question of whether or not this was very misleading. And I will read to you one sentence that caught my eye from the Mueller report. And that was Mueller saying, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Now, I don't have a, a law very, degree. This is a very aggressive audience. <laughs> <laughs> that was omitted from the four-page letter that Barr submitted. It was? Yeah, look, I, I think a lot of things, <clears throat> obviously, when you have a four-page summary of a 400-page document, a lot, a lot will be omitted, but th that left a misleading impression. I'll tell you the other thing <clears throat> that I think we've been speculating about for three, three and a half weeks that I think it's interesting to focus on. We've all been wondering to whom did, to, if, if to anyone, did Bob Mueller intend to leave the question of obstruction crime? And people have used various football uh, metaphors like punting. And did he mean to leave it to uh, Congress? Did he mean to leave it to no one? Did he mean to leave it to Bill Barr? But here's how I've, I've thought about it today. He clearly didn't mean to leave it to Bill Barr in my view, even though I thought, he doesn't say that in, in so many words, but I think Bill Barr said this morning, among other things that made me disappointed in the press appearance, when asked, you know, do you think the special counsel had a problem with your making the call? I, I think he said, uh, I, I am told that the special counsel thought it was, the, you know, it was okay because it's the AG's prerogative. I have to double check that. Uh, and if, to the extent he said that, that's clearly not true. And the reason I think further than, you know, even more than I thought before today, they didn't leave it to the special counsels. He makes very clear something I think it's incredibly important. The special counsel accepts and adopts, whether you like it or not, the legal conclusion of the Office of Legal Counsel that says you cannot prosecute or indict a sitting president. Whether you like it or not, that's the interpretation by the prevailing, uh, you know, subdivision of the Department of Justice. And Bob Mueller in the report says we abide by that, we accept that. But then he says a couple of other things. He says, in light of that, in some ways it would be unfair for us to make a pronouncement of criminality because we can't prosecute. And therefore a target, whether it's the president or anyone else uh, who has that kind of immunity, does not have the ability to defend themselves and to clear their name. He also says, uh, even though you can't prosecute a sitting president, you can investigate a sitting president, and so we did a full and fair and thorough investigation. And then the other thing that is maybe not been as noted as much as it might be uh, is that the OLC opinion allows a, a president to be indicted for conduct once he's no longer president. And he uses this, this verb that I thought was notable, maybe it's just me, that we decided to do this investigation thoroughly and set forth our findings in part to preserve the evidence when it is fresh, when people's recollections are fresh.
which makes me think three three things at least, and I might forget by the time I get to number three. <laughs> Long day. <laughs> so you should never say that's a rule on, on cable news. Never say I have four yeah. points, and you're like, I don't know. And never say I don't know. It's like it's like one, yeah, <laughs> one, two, C, four. Um, I have a, I have I have a few points. <laughs> I have a couple three points. So I think he probably intended to leave it to Congress. The other party to whom he intended to leave it, given that language, is some future prosecutor who might be able to make the case against Donald Trump using his work as a guide and a roadmap when he leaves, if and when he leaves office. And the reason why, and the third point, I got all three. And the reason why I think that he didn't intend it for Barr, on top of all the other reasons, is that Bob Mueller's view, whether you agree with it or not, is that he is subject, as a member of the Justice Department, to that legal conclusion, that legal interpretation, you can't charge the sitting president. For all these reasons that follow from that, he couldn't make a judgment on criminality. He would be wrong for someone in Bob Mueller's position to make that determination. Well, I believe it's the case that Bill Barr is also a member of the Justice Department and would also be subject to those same considerations. You may disagree with them, but, in, but if the question is, what did Bob Mueller intend and what was his point of view, if Bob Mueller thought that I, Bob Mueller, as special counsel, shouldn't make this determination, then he sure as hell thought Bill Barr shouldn't make the determination. And I find that unfortunate also, because not only did he step in, but he left the misimpression, I think, that it was appropriate for him to, and that maybe it was even the will of Bob Mueller for him to do so. And so how likely do you think now, I mean, Bob uh, uh, Barr said today that Mueller can speak whenever he wants to, but how likely is it that we will hear Mueller testify now? So I, I actually think it's pretty, I hate predicting because I keep screwing it up. <laughs> I think it's pretty likely. You know, Barr said, it's a little hard to take back what he said, that he doesn't have a problem with Mueller testifying. Uh, there's been, I think, an invitation for him to testify. I might have some of the news today garbled because <laughs> it's been a long day. But, but I think Adam Schiff has asked him to testify. Or maybe it was yes. Jerry Nadler. Or somebody, some chairman, right, has asked him to, this is aggressive, informed. Um, and the other thing I will say is uh, Bob Mueller, you know, in, in my time when I worked on the Hill, and then I also worked obviously directly with him when I was U.S. attorney and he was FBI director, uh, he's not someone who seeks to testify in front of Congress. But when he was FBI director, as he, uh, he held that job for 12 years, he didn't shrink from it either. Right. And he didn't shrink from hard questions. I, I remember thinking at the time when I was new to the Hill, uh, and I would, you know, help people think about how to testify uh, at hearings from time to time, or, or give them advice, I would say you should become a student of Bob Mueller testifying at oversight hearings. He actually answers questions yes or no. And Bob Mueller was so good at answering questions sometimes in ways... Are there any senators here? Okay. <laughs> so some senators don't ask good questions. <laughs> and my senator always did. But some don't. And, I mean, literally, it's the case that sometimes... If you're a good staffer, you would write a question for you know your boss, for the member, and then you would literally put in, into the uh, into the outline, you know when witness so and so. This happened a lot with Alberto Gonzalez. He's not here, is he here? <laughs> I don't know if you remember him. Alberto Gonzalez. So you would write in the test. You would write in the questions. You know, ask question X when he lies or obfuscates uh, in this way. Then do this question. If he lies or obfuscates in that way, then ask that question. And you could, you, could, you could actually churn up like the five or seven minutes, depending on how long the round was. And I would see, you know, every staffer would do that because you expected 
administration officials would, would, would try to filibuster and chew up the time. And I would see senators ask Bob Mueller a question that they didn't think they were going to get an answer to, and he would say, no. Like, Where do I go? Okay, I yield my time. <laughs> so that's a long-winded I just wanted to tell that anecdote. There's a long-winded way of saying, I think if Bill Barr said it's okay, publicly in the way he did, and the public really wants to hear from him, and you have a Democratic chairman who wants him to come, and he doesn't shy away from it, I think we'll hear from him. I promise. I got a round of applause. We're going to hold you to it. I mean, just to be clear, no, Bob Mueller is not going to come out there and answer questions about classified material or seek to, um, you know, to, to give dramatic testimony and go out of his way to cast aspersions on Bill Barr or anyone else. He's not going to do that. But if he's asked good, direct questions, he will give good, direct answers, I believe. Um, and we'll get to your book, I promise, at the last minute of I've the I've talked about my book have. a lot. Yeah. We can do this. <laughs> but there's so much to talk about, Preet. So uh, we'll get to the issue of obstruction um, in a minute. But just to close up on collusion, because what I found interesting in this report was that there was an area, particularly when it came to the Russian meeting in Trump Tower, where there was a debate among Mueller's team as to whether or not there was enough evidence to charge for collusion because they agreed to a meeting knowing that they would be receiving dirt on the Clinton campaign, Clinton, Clinton you know, organization, what have you. And yet the Mueller team concluded that, A, they didn't get anything. They didn't get what they wanted. And B, they may have just been... What, say, what adjective are you going to use? <laughs> too inexperienced, too naive, um, too uneducated uh, to, to know what they were doing. Look, I, I think... I mean, I think that you sometimes have in, in groups of uh, prosecutors differences of opinion, and on close questions, reasonable people can differ. I also think it shows overall the general fairness of of the prosecuting team in the sense that you know they didn't on every if you go through it you'll see on on incident after incident there's somewhere uh, the, the special counsel report is very strong and says these are all the considerations in favor of believing something to be true and then in other respects they will say no so for example in the in the second part of the Mueller report relating to obstruction they're pretty light on the idea that uh, un unaggressive on the idea that, that Donald Trump somehow caused or directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. And in other areas, they're very strong. And this is an example of, a, of, a, of an area where you know, may, they, they seem to have bent over backwards to give the benefit of the doubt uh, to Don Jr. and others on this idea of their level of sophistication. I think other people might have thought differently, and it sounds like some people very aggressive. <laughs> and you know, some people on the team even thought that, and, and so you can have two minds about it. But yeah, but I think, I think overall, that gets credibility to the character of the investigation as a whole that they're prepared to give the benefit of the doubt in circumstances like that. Now, there were on the issue of obstruction of justice about ten to fourteen specific incidents that were highlighted in this report that raised flags among the Mueller team as to possible obstruction of justice charges. Um, which one of those, because I found them all interesting, but I'm curious, which one of those stood out to you in the sense that if you were in Mueller's position, 
you would have focused more on yourself. So they're all so interesting. Um, is it, is it, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 so I've read it only once, which is one more time than individual one has probably read it. <laughs> but look, I'm just, I, now that I know what you guys are like, I'm just going to pander to you. <laughs> The whole, I didn't know. <laughs> but let's, let's start with the obvious one, the firing of Jim Comey. So the firing of Jim Comey, I thought, you know, they sort of went back and forth a little bit. On the issue of, um, of, of credibility, of what Jim Comey said, and it relates both to the firing and there are other instance, instances that relate to Jim Comey, I think an important takeaway from the report is that in, you know, sort of deliberate, thoughtful, evidence-based manner, uh, on occasion after occasion, when Donald Trump's recollection or statements about an event are put up against someone else's, and in this case, Jim Comey's, the special counsel always credits the other person, in this case, Jim Comey, because among, you know, there was, it's not relating to the firing, but relating, but it, you know, leads up to the firing on the issue of Michael Flynn and whether or not the president, you know, pulled him aside or had, I think it was at the private dinner, all the facts and circumstances and the credibility of Jim Comey over time and the fact that he took contemporaneous notes and he shared some of those comments with people contemporaneously and that it makes sense that something untoward may have been discussed because he kicked other people out of the room, etc. So I think that's interesting. With respect to the firing, I think they do a pretty fair job of suggesting there's, you know, a series of bits of evidence that suggest that the president fired Jim Comey because... Uh, he didn't like the Russian investigation, and they cite some evidence, including things that we've already known about because they've been in the public eye, like his interview with Lester Holt, the crazy things he said to the Russian officials about Jim Comey, the nut job. But then he, all, but then they also lay out other reasons that are maybe not, you know, lovely, uh, but are a little more innocuous, like this view that the president had that he should be, uh, he should get the benefit of Jim Comey saying into to the public that he had told President Trump, which when this was true, that he was not the personal target, he was not personally being investigated. And clearly, the president was very upset about that and wanted it to be known. And the, and the letter, ultimately, that related to Jim Comey's firing, which is recited in great detail in the report, the president insisted on that line being in the letter, that, you know, thanks for telling me three times that I was not a target of the investigation. <laughs> And whatever you think of that reason, to the, you know, to the extent that was the reason, or most of the reason, that lowers, I think, uh, the, the, the correctness of a conclusion that it was obstruction. Because it was not about the Russian investigation, it was about insubordination in some measure. But then they also go through all the pretexts that occurred with respect to the treatment of Hillary Clinton. I mean, the idea that, that Hillary Clinton's treatment by Jim Comey, which is the cause of Donald Trump becoming president, was then later the reason for him firing Jim Comey is utterly preposterous. And which Rosenstein wrote, right? Which himself. Rosenstein wrote. He's a, that's a complicated figure right there. Did you guys see him today where there were all the memes about sort of hostage video standing behind bar, not what was going on through his mind? One recurring theme was just the number of lies, right? Well, From the president my... to Sarah Sanders... So we were talking in the car over here about how if if you follow you should follow me on Twitter also. There's like a He's got like over a million followers. There's like I would have two million if all of you <laughs> followed. Um, 
So I was really doing it. I came into D.C. last night so I could be fully prepared to read the report and not look at my phone and not watch television, which I did assiduously for at least an hour and a half, two hours. That's a long time. Uh, and then I got to the part, maybe you probably haven't read it yet. Then I got to the part where there was a description of Sarah Huckabee Sanders at the podium. And I remember at the time, this was shocking to me, and friends of mine and I, we discussed how it was clearly a blatant lie, but we had no proof. Sarah Sanders, in connection with the firing of Jim Comey, says, uh, I think she's asked the question, you know, the rank and file love him uh, or like him very much. She said, well, I've heard people say things to the contrary. And then she essentially says, I've, I've heard from countless, we've heard from countless people by email and text or something uh, that they have lost confidence in the FBI director. And I remember thinking, that's just, I know that's not true, anecdotally. And then she said it again in the press conference. She doubled down on it. And she said it very obnoxiously, I remember. And I remember it was very obnoxious. And then later, at, an, at another event, and by the way, she's echoing in this again, this non-virtuous feedback loop between the president and people who um, surrender their souls for him. <laughs> because the president said, you know, nobody likes you at the FBI, you, know, you don't have their confidence. She says the same thing, and then she said it again. And then, you know what? She sits down for an interview with the law guys, and she basically says, that was a slip of the tongue. And then says, literally admits, uh, she said it then, and then the second time she said it, it was in the heat of the moment, and it was not based on anything. Not the most important lie in the history of the Mueller investigation, uh, not the most obsequious one, not the most consequential one, but it made me the most angry, I think. Yeah. Because here you have somebody who knowingly just like unloads bunk on the American people, and she still has her job. Some people don't have their job. She... <laughs> She still has her job. Yes. And by the way, that that coming out may have reinforced her keeping this job, too. I mean, you have a president who probably would reward that behavior as opposed to saying, no, I was told to say that. And Yeah. You, you see it. You see it time and time again, which is one of the reasons when we get to the book uh, next time I'm in town. No, no, no. We're getting we're going to we're getting to the book. No, no. I, I like segue. talking about this, but I'm going to I'm going to make it relevant. Okay. I'm going to make it relevant. Look at this. Watch this. So, I think that we're living in a time where you have a president and, and in some ways a party who will tolerate lies and insinuation and misleading information because who cares, right? Because they're not going to prove it wrong. It's just the public. It doesn't really matter. And it serves some purpose. And everyone else does it anyway. And truth isn't truth, as Giuliani says. And there are alternative facts. And we all swim in these, these nonsensical lies, which allows someone like Sarah Huckabee Sanders to get up there and just spout, I was going to use a bad word, but I think he, I shouldn't hear. Um, I, I'll use the initials, BS. And, and then you, and, and you have, you know, Michael Cohen has a history of doing that, and Paul Manafort, and I call them clowns. These clowns, they go about their business, and they go on cable television, they'll go up at uh, conferences, and they'll speak nonsense, and they don't have to correct themselves, they never apologize, but then, you know, from time to time, they have to be involved in a legal proceeding. And then you watch these people, Roger Stone, Bianca and I were talking about this too earlier, you see Roger Stone, who's basically a fountain of lies, this guy, and then all of a sudden, he's indicted 
and he does a lot of other nonsensical things, and he's now worried his bail is going to be revoked. And he does a thing that I've never seen him do on television or anywhere else. He apologizes like his life depends on it to the judge for posting this thing. You have people like, like Michael Cohen, who we know has lied, lied on behalf of the president, has, has lied to Congress, been indicted for it, accept responsibility for it, has engaged in thuggish behavior, but then he becomes someone who's now subject to legal process. And now he's like a choir boy sitting in front of a committee in Congress. Tell, maybe he has changed for the better. It's not, I'm not, people can redeem themselves, but you just see the, the inversion. And then you have Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who blithely says on national television, she's only the spokesman for, I don't know, the president. And truth, truth doesn't matter for her at the podium in that position. You know when truth does matter? Truth matters when she's talking to FBI agents who work for the special counsel who are asking her about something that she probably thought, who cares? Everybody hates Comey anyway. It's in the service of the presidency. And there she says, oh, you know what? It wasn't based on anything. The truth had to be told. And so, that's not the book. Well, truth matters in the Southern District of New York. Truth matters in court. And in, even though it's the case that I'm guessing there are at least one or two lawyers here. <laughs> are you all lawyers? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna ask for a, a, a head count. But 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 at a, and I make this point in the book, and it's a generalized point. But, but you see it happening every day when you read about what's going on with the administration. People malign lawyers for good reason, and they're good reason why there are a lot of lawyer jokes. But the one thing that lawyers do, particularly litigators and criminal lawyers who go to court and have trial, is you can't get away with this clownish nonsense in court. You have to actually listen to the other side and engage with them because that's the only way you're going to persuade the jury that you're correct or the court that you're correct. And by the way, if you're caught lying, that could be an existential threat to your bar license. And you can't use innuendo and alternative facts and say truth isn't truth and say, oh, Mexicans are rapists. Convict this guy. You can't engage in the kind of uh, language, rhetoric, and conduct in a court of law, which I think should be respected, that we see commonplace in the public square and in connection with something that's not unimportant. It's, it's essentially how we elect people in this country, how we persuade people to proper public policy. And so the only point is I think we could learn something from how the court of law works. And one thing that we also learn is that the Mueller report splintered off many other investigations, a big one takes place in the Southern District of New York. You were the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York before the President fired you a little over a year ago. Do you celebrate that day? Like, is it an anniversary? I, would, I wouldn't say celebrate. It was two years ago. Two years ago, um, yes. No, look, I think there's one more thing about just connecting. Just, I had a couple of moments. I had a couple of moments today reading the report. And so you may, may appreciate, um, if, you, if you followed my Twitter account or, or listened to the podcast, you know, the day before I was asked to resign, the President of the United States called me, and I had to make the decision, because it's bizarre, like, why is he calling me? He called me twice during the transition. I didn't know why he was calling. It wasn't done through proper process. The Attorney General wasn't involved. Um, my spidey sense was up. Who's going to believe later on that the side conversation between a sitting Commander-in-Chief, President of the United States, with the local prosecutor who has jurisdiction over all his stuff, that that was that that was innocent, especially in light of, which I saw through the report today as well, 
the constant accusation against Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, that they had this meeting on the tarmac, and of course something untoward was discussed, because why would they have a conversation at all? And I didn't call the president back, and I've thought about that a lot. We deliberated on it because I didn't know how I was going to explain that conversation. I didn't want to be put in an untoward position. And I'm reading the report, and I'm seeing instance after instance where people who, whose judgment, even in other regards, is not exquisite, Don McGahn and others, telling the president repeatedly, could you please not call people at the Department of Justice? Can you please, can you please? There was one on January 17th. I didn't get fired till March. So he clearly knew it was a bad idea. Don't have, don't have, meet alone with Jim Comey. Don't have dinner with him alone. And over and over and over again, he engaged in that conduct. I don't remember what your initial question was, but I just wanted to get that off my chest. <laughs> and, and to this day... But that sounded familiar to you, reading even totally Mueller's to report. And, this, and then, you know, there are other things that I knew about from before the report, but after I got fired, when Jim Comey was telling stories about how you know, the president's getting on a helicopter and he calls the FBI director and he's saying, it's a matter of national you know, security. And the president just wanted to shoot the breeze. Hey, Jim, what are you wearing? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I need loyalty. I don't know what was going on there. But, but, the, but, the, but the final point is, the more I hear about the ways in which Donald Trump tried to cross a line with law enforcement and ask people to investigate his adversaries or lay off his allies like Michael Flynn, or investigate Hillary Clinton uh, that crossed the line and put both the person he was talking to and himself in jeopardy and, and caused exposure for them. My decision not to call the President of the United States back, even though it may have cost me, and I don't know for sure, but may, you know, it may have cost me the best job I've ever had in my life, is one of the best things I ever did. So this is the, I'm very fortunate because this is the second time I get to interview Preet for his book. It's a fantastic book. But I was um, maybe not so surprised now knowing you a bit better, but the president's rarely mentioned in this book. Yet He was mentioned more tonight. Yes. <laughs> Yet you found it important that in this day and age to write a book, first of all, you this is a love letter. You dedicate this to your family and the Southern District of New York. Um, why was it important to write about how the U.S. justice system works right now? Well, it goes back to what we've been talking about. So actually, there's a good interplay between the Mueller report coming out today and the book. Because uh, I think people are very confused about what's going on. People don't understand where we are. I mean, the fact that a middle-aged former prosecutor has a podcast that lots and lots of people listen to is bizarre. <laughs> and I think it has something to do with, you know, thoughtful citizens being deeply interested in how the Constitution works, how the law works, how the criminal law, uh, the criminal justice system works. And when you hear stories about, um, you know, Michael Cohen being arrested or a search warrant being executed, or is someone going to flip and what does that mean? How do you flip? You know, people who, who care about the country and want to know what's going on and what the results are going to be, they want to know what the baseline of proper conduct is. They want to know what the baseline of justice is. And so, you know, to always take the bait and talk about Trump, you know, I have Twitter for that and, and other forums for that. But sometimes what you want to do is take a, a proper step backwards and think, forget about Trump and forget about the uh, assaults on the rule of law and the undermining of institutions that we deal with in, in the constant, you know, 24-hour news cycle. Let's say in the absence of that, what is the way that a good democracy and a good society 
should think about truth, should think about justice, should think about how we get to those things, should think about uh, the fairness of decision-making, the fair-mindedness of the people who are involved in decision-making. Uh, and then when I thought about it that way, I realized you can tell lots and lots of stories, and a lot of stories in the book from my time as U.S. attorney and overseeing cases, some cautionary tales also, they tell us a lot about what's going on now. I, I think I say in the preface to the book, you know, a lot of it is about cases and controversies that precede the current day. But sometimes the best way to address current events is to go back to first principles. So I tried to do that. And you delved the book into really four phases of a case, the inquiry, the accusation, the judgment, and the punishment. And you talk about the fact that facts are front and center. There's not politics in any of the decision-making as to whether or not you prosecute a case or not. And you talk about the men and the women that uphold the justice system in the country, and um, very honorable people. And I, I, I'd be remiss if we don't talk about somebody who you dedicate a whole chapter to, and that's Kenny McCabe. Can you talk about him? Yes, absolutely. So, so one of the things, just as a preface to that, a theme of the book and a theme of how I thought about my job as U.S. attorney was uh, to make sure people understood not only that we are a country of laws, not of men, as has been famously said. You need good laws, you need a good constitution, you need good regulations, they need to be finely crafted. But none of that matters if you don't have good people who interpret them and enforce them and exercise their discretion exquisitely with respect to their responsibilities. And early in the book, I quote from uh, Clarence Darrow, most famous criminal defense lawyer of all time, who said, in a, in a defense summation, when he was defending someone against uh, a homicide charge on the self-defense theory, he said, you know, no matter what laws we pass, no matter what precautions we take, unless the people we meet are kindly and decent and human and liberty-loving, then there is no liberty. Freedom, he went on to say, comes from human beings rather than from laws and institutions. Learned Hand has said something similar. You know, he, he would say, and it's emblazoned on a lot of important buildings around the country, you know, I, he said, I fear we, keep, we, we, we place our faith too much on courts. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women, and when it dies there, no law, no court, no constitution can save it. So it's an important theme that I think gets overlooked. So one of the things I tried to do was talk about some of the people who made a difference in other people's lives, not just, you know, folks who drafted regulations. And one of those people was Kenny McCabe, whose name you probably don't know, like a lot of folks in the book. Kenny McCabe is about six foot six. Uh, he passed from, from cancer a few years ago. I knew him as a young prosecutor. He was basically the person in New York who had been a cop for a number of years and then became an investigator at SDNY who probably did more to eradicate the Italian mafia in New York City than anyone else who ever lived. And he did it by, not by being a tough guy in the sense that, you know, the person at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue thinks you need to be, because he understood that if you have to tell people you're tough or you have to act tough, then you're not tough. Toughness was, was on the inside. Toughness was, make, you know, being confident enough to keep your mouth shut. Uh, toughness was about treating people, even that you're investigating, with respect. You know, Kenny McCabe was the guy, among other things, who, who had an encyclopedic knowledge of all the five families in New York. Uh, he was the one who you see depicted in movies sometimes, who would go to the, to the weddings uh, and the confirmations and, and, the, and the other events, uh, you know, the birthday parties, taking pictures of the people who he believed were, you know, bosses, members, associates, captains of the mob. And he kept file cabinets on, his, on the ninth floor 
of our office on, on uh, once in Andrews Plaza, literally with pictures of basically every capo he had ever come across. And sometimes you have to use that in court, in, in a RICO prosecution, racketeering prosecution, to show linkages between people and, um, and an enterprise. And so I just tell basic stories about how, how good a person he was, how straight and honest he was, even with the people he was investigating, uh, how even the people he investigated and, and sent to prison respected him. I, I, had a, uh, I had an evening of drinks with Kenny's son when I was writing the book, Duke. And he would tell me stories about how uh, years later, when, when people that Kenny, and you never hear this, this is, does not happen in the movies that you watch, right? It's always different. And that Duke, the son, was still moved by. He would get postcards and notes from people who had been locked up by Kenny years earlier. And when Kenny died, they wrote letters to Duke saying, it was an honor to be arrested by your father. <laughs> now, if that doesn't speak volumes, then I don't know what does. No. You also talk about how, um, against what many would perceive uh, rigor pursuit to prosecute a case at, at all costs, you made sure that those who worked with you did not function that way. That if that there was not enough evidence, if a case was not worth pursuing, you were not going to punish them for that. Why is that important? Why is that important for uh, Americans to know? I think it's, it may be the most important thing. You don't want prosecutors, let me put it this way, in, in the context of Mueller and everything else, you know, people, people would ask me the question, you know, is, is Mueller going to get the president? Is SDNY going to get the president? Is SDNY going to get Michael Cohen? That is not their job. If that's your orientation, no matter how much you dislike the president politically, if the orientation of the prosecutors whom you pay, you pay their salaries, and whom you have to have trust that they're making their decisions based on the law and the facts, not on some political hope that they have but shouldn't or that you may have, then you have a big problem. The job of the prosecutor, Mueller, SDNY, U.S. Attorney, whoever else, is to figure out what the truth is and then figure out what in the interest of justice, consistent with the facts and the law, is appropriate to do. If that happens to be uh, that a crime has been committed and justice is served by prosecuting the crime and holding the person accountable, then you have to be fearless about it and you proceed. But if not, then you have to walk away. And it's very interesting, in the Mueller report, you know, lots of people have deposited a lot of hope in being maybe delivered from this presidency by Bob Mueller, which I think has always been a little bit misplaced, because that's not Bob Mueller's job. And so, to the extent people may have felt mildly disappointed, or deeply disappointed, that Mueller decided to abide by the Office of Legal Counsel policy that you can't indict a sitting president. So you don't think he dropped the ball? I don't think he dropped the ball. I mean, look, reasonable people can differ about judgments. I mean, Bob Mueller and the people who work with him, they're just people. And people can get things wrong. I'm just a person. We got things wrong. I talk about some of those things in the book. But I have no doubt that they're operating in good faith and they're doing the best they can and they're thinking about it the right way. Uh, you know, someone once, someone did a profile of one of the people working on the Mueller team who I, I hired in the Southern District of New York. And they asked me about him, and I said, well, I think he's a terrific prosecutor and has a lot of great judgment, but what I think is very important, and it goes right to your question, is that, uh, and it's Andrew Goldstein, in case his family is present, uh, who's one of the great prosecutors. And he, I, I said about him, 
he is tough and aggressive, and, and I mean this, he's a proxy for almost all the people I work with in the Southern District, which I think is an important ethic. He was aggressive and strong and fearless and would not stand back if he thought the appropriate thing was to prosecute someone, no matter how powerful they are, how much money they have. But he also would be fully prepared to walk away, like you need to be, even if you think, God, I really wish I could get that person, or I really think that person's a bad guy, or I really think the world would be better if, you know, by some uh, circumstance, prosecution or otherwise, they could be removed. Or even if, you know, millions of people think that we should take an action, if, if it doesn't comport with what I think the law and the facts are in good faith, then I can walk, I can, I can take criticism for going aggressive if I think it's right, and I can take and accept criticism if I walk away if it's correct and right. And that's what you want in the people who have these powerful jobs. Uh, one of the many reasons I love the book is you, you talk about your family. You talk, it's a very honest, raw book for those that haven't read it. Um, but raw. You, it's very raw. <laughs> you, I mean, your wife being mugged when she's pregnant. I mean, I was, that was, that was a raw moment. Um, you, you talk about your own personal growth and evolution throughout your professional career, though. And when it comes to criminal justice reform, an area that's very dear to your heart, you say, on a policy level, we must rethink sentence length, mandatory minimums, discretion in charging, cash bail, and so many other things. And I'm going to ask you what I asked you at, at the last time we spoke, and, and that is, is this an area where you can give praise to the Trump administration for his focus, its focus, Jared Kushner's focus, on the subject matter in particular? Look, you know, you got to, I think, call it down the middle, and, you know, some version of criminal justice reform was passed by this administration. You know, got through by, by this administration. Uh, and I think if you talk to a lot of people, they don't think it's enough. And there, there have been, there are, you know, a couple of perversions in it, one of which I can mention in a second. Uh, but sure, you know, when, when good things happen and, you know, fairness is increased and you have, I think, uh, you know, less draconian sentences uh, that are appropriate to make less draconian, then I think that's a good thing. The weird hiccup is, you might have seen this in the New York Times, uh, one of the things that this, this, this sentencing reform legislation does is it allows uh, you know, somebody who meets certain criteria to be released from jail early. And you know, a lot of the impetus behind this was to try to remedy discrepancies in the treatment of, uh, between you know, white folks and people of color and, and lots of, sort of discriminating, discriminatory uh, systemic problems uh, and, and people who are less advantaged and maybe didn't have uh, you know, better options. And what you've actually found, for good or ill, is that a number of the people who are becoming eligible for early release are actually very privileged, very wealthy, um, on in their years, white-collar defendants, because they, match, they, they hit these criteria. And there was a person that I prosecuted that I talked about in the third chapter of the book who committed a multi-hundred million dollar fraud uh, that was pretty brazen and carried on over a course of years. He's gotten out of jail a number of years early because of this reform. So I don't make a pronouncement about whether that's a good or bad thing, but sometimes when you pass certain kinds of reform, there are results that not everyone expected. I'm going to ask you one more question before we open up to the audience. And this is, um, I want to go back to your family, because in your first podcast, I believe, you talked about having a dinner conversation, dinner table conversation with your kids and your wife about uh, agreeing to stay on the job, right? This is before you were fired. And uh, your children questioned that and wondered why you would work for a president like 
Donald Trump, given that what you know you had seen um, and they had seen even during the campaign. I wonder now, two over two years later, how your children view your decision and view what they've read in the book and in the podcast and everything that you've sort of done with your life since. How they view you now? They think I'm an idiot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this um, is meant to be a heartfelt moment. I get hard, but I got to well because they do think I'm an I'm an idiot. Um, one of the I don't want to ruin it, but you know, multiple people have told me that their favorite moment in the book is, is I can ruin it, right? Is when um, I, I have a chapter about verdicts, and I just want to explain to people who have not been in the process, you know, what that means, what the moment of the verdict is like, and I and part of the chapter just literally describes moment by moment, you know, the sounds you hear, the people you see, what the jury looks like, who's fretting, who's praying, and it's, it's very fraught. But I begin the chapter talking about how, you know, prosecutors fret also, even though the consequence for them is not as great as obviously the person who's on trial. And we had, we had uh, our first gigantic insider trading trial, probably the most significant one in a generation anywhere in the country, was against this person we had charged, Raj Rajaratnam, and the jury was at 11 days. It's a long time. It's the longest jury out that I can recall. And everyone's getting nervous. We're wondering what's going to happen. And we, there was a conviction on all counts. And on the way back uh, from the office, the next day, uh, there was a nice New York Times article, uh, and, and it profiled that I was relatively new U.S. attorney at the time. And it was, you know, was kind of nice. And I bought, you know, like 30 copies of it. And, <laughs> I, and, I, and I bring them home. And my daughter at the time was 10 years old. And she was, uh, she was sitting, she was doing homework, because she's always doing homework. And I, and I pulled out the article, and I said, I said Maya, why, why don't you read this article? And it's a nice picture. Why don't you read, uh, could you read this article about me? <laughs> and it's the only time I've ever asked her to do it, and the last. So she reads it, and she gets, and as she gets to the end, her, she pauses, and there's a moment when... Uh, I realized she was pausing on the last sentence, and, and it's a quote from me at some press conference being like very finger-pointy. So I wish we could say that we had solved the problem of insider trading, but we are far from finished. And my daughter looks up at me, and I'm like looking at her, and she there's a direct quote. She says, Daddy, why are you such a drama queen? <laughs> All right, so now the serious answer to your question. Look, um, so I got fired on a Saturday, and this is an answer to your question. Uh, and I, I was really sad, not because I had some entitlement to be there longer. I did seven and a half years. It's a long time. And I'm sitting uh, with my deputy, June Kim, and the chief counsel, Joan Lockman, and I'm literally just waiting. I mean, they, they were incompetent even about firing me because I said, I'm not going to resign. That's on Friday. I'm like, okay, I can go home. I can pack. I, came, I had to come back to the office on Saturday because I, they still had not fired me. I'm sitting in my office. I'm thinking I'm going to be fired before lunch. I can go and have lunch elsewhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not fired yet. We ordered Vietnamese food. We're, I'm, eating, I'm eating summer rolls. Vienna's like, this is a very long answer to this question. And, and, then, and then finally, you know, I, I got the confirmation that, the, that it was the president's will that I be fired and I left but the thing but, but then I realized I couldn't come back I got very sad I'm like you know I got fired on a weekend I, I don't have the chance to come back 
and just thank everybody. You know, all these people, most of whom I had hired and I worked with for a number of years, you know, just to tell them what I think about them and to say something uplifting to them and, and make sure that they, you know, stayed and did this great work for everyone. And then June, my deputy, looks at me and he sees my sad face. He's like, well, you can come back on Monday. We'll let you in the building. <laughs> and I said, that's so nice of you. <laughs> and so I came, and the best part of that was it was the only time that I can remember that my wife allowed us to take the kids out of school. And so my kids came to my farewell speech, which was emotional for me, at least. And, you know, in discussions I had with them over that weekend, uh, and, you know, seeing what they heard me say and discussions we had after that, I got the sense, you know, that they understood a little bit why their father worked as hard as he did and why he wasn't around as much as maybe uh, he might have hoped to be because it was in the service of doing good stuff. And the, 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 the uh, conversation you talked about when I told, we waited till uh, the day after Thanksgiving weekend when I had heard that Donald Trump was asking me to stay, you know, rewinding a little bit, you know, my family was not happy about Donald Trump being elected, my daughter in particular, and I told them over dinner, I said, we have to have a family meeting about this. And I started to tell them, you know, Donald Trump has asked me, will ask me when I meet with him to stay. And my, my daughter's probably channeling the drama queen thing. He's like, you're just, what? He said, why would you do that? And I, and I explained, I gave them the explanation. That was the real explanation. I understood that I had an incredibly gratifying and important job. I feel like I wasn't done with a number of things. I didn't agree with the president on a, on a ton of stuff. He was not my person to go into the White House. But I felt that I could continue to do good in part because I believed what Barack Obama said to all the U.S. attorneys one day at a photo op. He said, look, I appointed you, but you don't answer to me. You don't work for me. You work for the American people. And I thought that I would be able to do my job you know, sort of unmolested by politics and the, and the president or the White House. Uh, and a lot of good I could still be part of. And when it became clear uh, that I had to put my money where my mouth is and I received a phone call and realized I'm probably going to receive more of these if the consequence of that, and I've already said this, the consequence of that was I can't continue the job. That's okay. And I think my kids, my kids uh, understand it. You are doing good, and I know they're proud of you, and I think your parents are getting there. Um, I love how you always talk about your parents, by the way. They're tough. They're tough. My parents, um, I still joke about this, but I think it wasn't until I was like 48 that they're okay that I didn't become a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Preet. Um, okay. We are a little past time, so I want to get to the audience now and get some of your great questions. Start right here. Oh. And I'd like to see some women come up and ask questions, too. We'll start with a man. It's okay. Go ahead. Welcome to cut in front of me. Already. Um, but I have two questions. You can choose which one to answer. First, thank you for being here tonight. There's no one, I think most of us, certainly I would rather hear from tonight, today, uh, than you. So it's nice to be here. Um, 
I'm going to answer that question. Can I answer that question? Sure, but I got two more. Uh, the two questions are, number one, if you're a sitting member of Congress, based on what you've read today, do you move forward with impeachment, or do you think that is not the right move? Second question, you can choose either one, is there are hundreds of thousands of particularly young men of color, but certainly plenty of people in the justice system today who are incarcerated who did not get the uh, treatment that the president did today from the literal head of the Department of the Lofty Ideal of Justice that you revere. What is your view for them who must see that this is an injustice? How do you, from today, what is your, you who revere justice, how do you make good of that and what would be your message to them? Feel free to answer both alternatives. <laughs> the second question is a much more complicated question than the first one. It's tough. I think, I think there needs to be a lot of discussion about how we erase discrepancies and how we have a fairer system. Um, this book is not full of reform ideas, and maybe that's the next book, um, but, but it is about how, making, how you make sure that you keep in mind those things. You keep in mind, you know, I have a whole chapter on, on victims and people who don't get their day in court, and I don't talk explicitly about the Me Too movement, but it's really about this idea that if, if you're not as powerful as the person who, offend, who, who committed the offense against you, um, if you're not as wealthy as they are, if you're not uh, you know, in the same privileged social or racial class as they are, then maybe you don't get justice, maybe you don't get believed, and that prosecutors need to think about that, and lawmakers need to think about that. And, I, and so that's an important question, which I can't answer in, in 30 seconds. The first question, also complicated. Um, look, I think about these things not as a politician, because I'm not a politician. I saw Steny Hoyer say, just before we came over here, which is an odd day to say it, and I'm paraphrasing, that impeachment is a bad idea, we can have an election in 18 months. I thought, on a day when, is Denny here? <laughs> Just want to make sure, because if he was, I was going to say this more loudly. Um, it, just, it just seems odd on a day when people are still digesting a, a recitation of really odious, terrible, dysfunctional, bad conduct, you know, directing people to lie, at a minimum, you know, trying really hard to obstruct justice. And as the report said, largely failing because these other people refused to do the things you told them to do. Let that marinate for like a day before you decide, and I, I know it's in good faith, I guess, before you, you try to throw hot water on it, or cold water on it, I'm sorry, I could forget hot and cold. So I don't know what I would do, you know, Depending on what your background is, you, you tend to think that the instrument that you're comfortable with, you know, whether it's investigation or something else, is the right solution. Uh, maybe if I were a psychiatrist, I would have a different, you know, view. But I believe I believe in in people getting to the truth and finding out what happened. And I'm not saying I necessarily support because I I understand the political ramifications, but I'm not good at the politics. There's a lot there to be explored, and Bob Mueller set forth a lot of things that deserve a lot of attention, and I believe that he put them down either for a future prosecutor for when Donald Trump is no longer in office, or for the sitting Congress. And I don't think they should shy away from it. And I would just, I, I would just button that with e equally notable to what Steny said was the fact that I don't think there was one Republican elected official who at least spoke out um, 
outraged or against what they had read today. In fact, the GOP as a whole declared vindication. So I think that's sort of the political landscape that we're in today. Um, okay, let's come over. Preet, I want to put, try to bring a little Jewish context into this. A lot of what you said about the justice system is deeply rooted in, in Jewish uh, teaching and law about impartiality and pursuit of justice. We're coming up on the holiday of Passover when we're taught to be, one of the things we're taught is to be kind to strangers because we were strangers in a strange land, Egypt, that we were liberated from thousands of years ago. So I'm struggling personally with the question of immigration. The immigration law, I understand, was built a lot, not, not, not the, um, what do you call it, somebody seeking asylum law, is built on the ashes of the Holocaust, a lot of it, from what I understand. So this is an open-ended question, because I'm just struggling with, you know, when is it, can we continue to, just an open-ended question about the law and our current situation with the immigration dilemma that we face as a, as a nation. Yeah, so another simple question. Uh, I should, by the way, I should begin, since, you're, since, you're, since, since we're in a synagogue, and I should mention my wife is Jewish, and my family, uh, people don't, I don't talk a ton about my family, you know, in, per, in personal terms, very diverse religious faiths, uh, more diverse than any other family that I know. Uh, my, uh, my children, all four grandparents are still living, which is wonderful. But my children have one Jewish grandparent, one Muslim grandparent, one Hindu grandparent, and one Sikh grandparent, <laughs> which I think means, if I'm doing the math correctly, makes them Episcopalian. <laughs> so we're, 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 we're very open to all faiths in my, in my house. Look, immigration to me is very personal. I'm an immigrant. If you look at my Twitter bio, um, you, you, basically all you need to know, we, could have, we didn't have to spend this hour and 15 minutes together, <laughs> you know, uh, banned by Putin, fired by Trump, uh, Springsteen lover, proud immigrant. And jurors, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have not been happy with and have been very upset by not just the policies but also the rhetoric. And you remember initially the, the White House would and its supporters would say, well, illegal immigration is the problem. We're only talking about illegal immigration. And you see very easily how that morphs into you know, closing the borders for an entire class of people, all Muslims, or uh, building a wall, or separating kids at the border, uh, and all sorts of other hateful rhetoric about, you know, essentially people like me and my family who came from India, you know, some decades ago, so we could have a better life here. I and mean, I think the, the distance we have traveled from Ronald Reagan, who I don't know, a pretty conservative guy, and how he talked about immigration. You know, he he famously gave a speech, his last speech in office was about how America should always welcome people. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, the fact that you have you know, maybe the most iconic Republican president of the last number of decades, if not you know, half century, speaking that way about immigration, it's something that everyone could agree upon. A Democratic president would have said what Reagan said, and Reagan said, and he had policies I don't agree with. But this idea of a welcoming United States as embodied in the symbol of the Statue of Liberty is one that used to be pretty well settled in this country. And when you have hateful rhetoric, and then you have hateful policies, 
that people think are okay to espouse because of the hateful rhetoric, I think it's not only bad for immigrants, it's bad for everybody. And I think it makes us uh, look terrible in the eyes of the world. I think it makes us weaker. I think it makes us uh, less able to enrich ourselves. Uh, and it's just, I don't have a solution, but I think that the more people can talk about these things and protest bad policies and put people in office who care about openness while also caring about security. I mean, I was a former prosecutor. We prosecuted serious immigration offenses too. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's not a good situation, and I appreciate your mentioning it. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I have a question about prosecutorial decision-making and the completeness of the Mueller report, um, particularly about uh, his decision not to uh, subpoena Don Jr. Um, on the campaign's, uh, possible campaign finance violations because of like the high bar of mens rea. And then um, choosing not to pursue the subpoena of Donald Trump because of the kind of odious nature of the legal process and drawing that out. Um, why do you think he chose not to pursue those things? And under what circumstances, when you're a prosecutor prosecuting a case, do you choose not to subpoena individuals that might be of interest in this way? So let me just ask about answer about um, the president. Don Jr. is a slightly different case, and I, I haven't focused on that as much. And again, like on that issue, like other issues, people can reasonably differ, reasonable people can differ. So on the press, so Mueller lays it out pretty clearly. It's one of the few things that I predicted correctly, because I would be asked all the time, like, why isn't he pursuing a compulsory interview? Why isn't he using a subpoena? And my hypothesis had been, look, it takes a long time uh, if you fight it. And it would be, you know, quite a legal fight, probably go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And it seems clear from a lot of indicia that Bob Mueller did not want to be doing this forever. I mean, he wants to go back to his life. And 22 months was about enough for him. Probably A, because he didn't want this to bleed into the next election. B, he didn't want to continue to be accused of you know, taking too long. Uh, and you know, by the way, that he ended it sooner than he had to. In because according to the report, there are 14 offshoots, as, as Bianca mentioned. He could have kept some or all of those we still have the Roger Stone trial. There's lots of still think, things still going on. So he, he must have made the, con the conclusion that I got to end at some point, and then these other investigations will have life elsewhere. And to proceed with uh, a subpoena of the president, when you know there's going to be a fight, once you go down that path, you have to complete it. I can't do a report, he must have thought, of any sort, about any of this other stuff, until that fight is done. If that fight's going to take 18 months, then everyone is going to be in limbo for, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with them, just, you know, stating what I think his thought process was, some of which was indicated in the report, that I gotta, I gotta end this. But then he also, so I think it was the, the delay, and he was probably weighing those things against each other. But then second, he says, you know what, in lots of cases, you, you can bring an obstruction of justice charge or make your decision about it without interviewing the target, in part because it's circumstantial anyway, you might not learn something from that person. He says also, some people uh, who fall into that category may assert their Fifth Amendment privilege against testifying. So it's not unheard of that you, that you make your decision without forcing that testimony. But in the middle of that, I think something's very significant. And that is that he said something like, yeah, you know, we didn't also pursue the, the subpoena because we had a pretty good gauge on the circumstances, the intent, 
the state of mind, everything else, which to me is a signal that notwithstanding the language of not deciding the criminal matter means that they thought there was more evidence than not that there was obstruction. Three more questions, because we're already over time, but I want to get as many questions in as possible, so let's go. I think you bring a very unique perspective because you've touched all three branches of government, and you're not a politician, and I respect that, but what do you pinpoint in modern politics or modern culture where truth, dignity, and justice seems to take a back street to greed and moral corruption? The question is... What do I make of the fact that those good things take a bad seat? What, what, bad what moment in time in modern era politics or modern society do you think that we flip the switch where true justice, dignity, at this point sometimes seems to take a back seat to greed and moral corruption? Yeah, so I don't know if there's been a flipping of the switch. I can't pinpoint. I, mean, I look, hope not. Yeah. I, I mean, there are people, I'm not old enough to tell you what it was like in, in the 50s. <laughs> Uh, and there has been, uh, you know, Boss Tweed was well before my time. Based on my experience in prosecuting public corruption cases and just being a citizen of the country and someone who, who reads history, I think we've had, you know, a lot of people place their own greed and personal benefit ahead of public interest for a long time. I mean, one of the things I did the most, that I oversaw the most when I was U.S. attorney, was public corruption prosecutions. Um, you know, I think maybe things are getting worse. Uh, I think you have... You know, something of a generation of folks who have come into government life in this administration who have not had, you know, a, a history or a track record of believing in service, but rather, um, you know, having a privileged lifestyle and wanting to continue their privileged lifestyle by taking planes, for example, from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, you know, chartered by the government. Uh, I don't know that there's a huge increase. And I, by the way, I don't think this is a partisan thing. I think there's right. greed and ambition. And, yes, and, both sides. And, yeah, both on both sides. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't know that there's something radical that happened recently. I think there's it's part of it is human nature. And do you believe Burr and Grassley will be held accountable for their mentions in the report? I don't know. Thanks. Hi, Preet. Um, I'm coming here as a sophomore from George Mason University, but I'm still a huge fan, excited by being a young person. Um, <laughs> some of, some of us young love middle-aged lawyers. <laughs> Uh, as you said in the podcast. Wait, I, what did I say in the podcast? That you, that you found it lovely that um, a lot of people are still, still listen to middle-aged lawyers talk for 40 minutes. <laughs> so thank you for all you do. Um, my question is, you talked about the importance of institutionalists and uh, how America is having a crisis of institutions. And I see this among young people, both on the right and the left. You, I, I see that people don't really care about what happens in the news in regards to impeachment sometimes. They don't, they don't really care about actual, like about institutions and more just about specific policies. For people like me who really care about this stuff, what is your advice for us in being activists for a strong justice system and strong institutions at large? What should we tell those of us in my generation? I have a lot of young fans, I think. <laughs> just, just not in my family. <laughs> Um, that's a very smart question and, and, a, and a thoughtful and profound one. And what I, what I think, and this is going to sound self-serving, people should listen to my podcast. <laughs> no, but, but in the sense that you know, people really have to learn how their government works. Uh, I was thinking about this. I, I was, there's an author I'm going to interview, um, Ben Dreyer, who has written a book about language, who's a copy editor at Random House. And he said a thing that I remember an old teacher of mine said, and that 
I've heard very thoughtful sort of political leaders say, there's nothing wrong with wanting radical change. And there's nothing wrong with wanting everything to be different. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to change direction and disrupting, uh, whether you're talking about art, or you're talking about poetry, or you're talking about, you know, fiction writing. That's all great. But before you can do any of those things, and I had a grammar teacher, an English teacher who was a, you know, something of a grammarian in eighth grade. I didn't know what he meant. Because we would say we're going to, you know, jettison some of the rules of grammar. And he said along these lines, well, first you have to learn what the rules are before you upend them. And it's great if you want to amend the Constitution. And it's great if you want to change political systems. It's great if you want to remove the Electoral College. It's great that you have young people, friends, who want certain things to change. But the only way you're going to understand the, the best and most fruitful way to do that, an effective way to do that, and persuasive way to do that, if you understand how the crappy system that currently exists works, and the, and the and the ways in which the things you think are crappy became that way, and what's good about them institutionally, and draw a distinction between sort of what I do in the book, draw a distinction between an institution that is good and fine and set up properly and its charter is wise, and the crappy people who may be entrusted with leading the institution or inhabiting the institution and separating those two things out and deciding, well, maybe we need to make the institution stronger or have the people be better before we can get the policy that some of your friends may be interested in. And so maybe that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, you know, a, a high, a tall order. But I really think that people learning how politics works, uh, getting involved in it and understanding institutions as they are is a step in that direction. Thank you. Hi, Preet. My name's Julie, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, my last question of the night is not about Mueller. It's actually about white-collar crime. Uh, on his latest show, John Oliver highlighted McKesson, the drug distributor, and said that corporate executives consider government fines as a cost of doing business. And going specifically to your former jurisdiction, Jamie Diamond of J.P. Morgan played a significant role in destabilizing our financial system in 2008, and yet the $44 billion in fines against the firms by the federal government did not come out of his pocket, it came out of shareholders' pockets. How are these CEOs, who are ultimately responsible for bad behavior at any level in their firms and are adequately compensated for it, not only, how are they not only staying out of jail, but share none of the financial penalties? How are corporate executives at these uh, medical companies perpetuating the opioid crisis, not murderers in the eyes of the law, and how does anyone with half a brain um, realize that an obvious lifelong criminal who should never, who should have been jailed decades ago even get to the point of qualifying to run as a presidential candidate? <laughs> Multi-parted. Do I get to, go to pick which of those questions? Save the yeah. easiest one for last. <laughs> Look, I, as you might imagine, this is not the first time I've been asked this question. And I talk about it in the book. Uh, there's a whole chapter about walking away and how frustrating it is when bad things happen, whether it's a building that burns to the ground and it seems to be under suspicious circumstances, or an economy collapses like it did in the financial crisis, or you have an opioid crisis. Uh, there are bad people who do bad things. There could be corrupt things. They could be reckless. They could be negligent. They could be greed. Uh, based, 
the very narrow job of the prosecutor, and I'm not speaking about the regulators, I'm not speaking about all the other ways in which people could be held accountable. Um, shareholders can decide they don't want to invest in corrupt institutions also. And regulators can decide, even though they have a lower burden of proof, that they could take action also, and none of them did. Because sometimes, even though you had, after the financial crisis, this is not going to be a satisfactory answer to everybody because it never is. Literally, there are thousands of people in this country, not just in my office, but in Washington, D.C., and in L.A., and in San Francisco, and Chicago, and all sorts of places, who looked really, really hard to try to see if they could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you know, a, a leader of a financial institution could be charged with a crime. And I don't have the time to go through all the reasons in all the myriad different circumstances, some of which I do in the book, why that didn't seem possible and was never recommended by people who, by the way, had every professional incentive to pursue such a thing and also a personal incentive. Because remember, all the people who were doing these jobs, in my office included, also suffered in the financial crisis. So the anger that, that I hear in your voice, the frustration, is also very much in the DNA, hearts and minds of all the people who are responsible for looking at these things. But the law has limits. And if you don't have the evidence, if you don't have the inside uh, person who flips, if you don't have the recorded call, or if you don't have a law that says, uh, you know, mere negligence is enough, you have to be able to prove in a court of law against a specific person, what did that person do? Look, and some of this, by the way, uh, is, is parallel to what we're seeing in the Mueller report. Now, I still say, you know, there are lots of people who will go around and say, well, Don Jr. is a criminal. Jared Kushner is a criminal. What business do they have getting security clearances? And I, I get where that's coming from. Bob Mueller, like it or not, took a look. And he said, and there's lots and lots of bad conduct laid out. If you look at the memos that, you know, do not become public with respect to financial crisis prosecutors, I suspect you will find a lot of bad conduct outlined. But it's a different thing. There's a difference between finding bad conduct and, and having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, especially when there are defenses. And they may be odious defenses, some of which I described, including I relied on my lawyer, and my lawyer said that that representation was fine. And maybe that was, a, you know, not, you know, a good faith position for the lawyer to take or the accountant to take. But if you're talking about current modern, you know, federal or state law, to charge someone with a crime of misrepresenting and that person says, this is one example, and I know it's not satisfying. And you say, I'm going to charge this person with a crime. And they said, and they can credibly say, and you can't pierce this, I made these representations after giving all the information to my lawyer and my independent third-party expert lawyer blessed it. How can I go to prison for that? And you may think to yourself, well, I don't care, but there are other circumstances in which if that was the rule, you couldn't rely on a third party than anybody who fills out taxes, and I presume at least some of you do. <laughs> it's very difficult to tell uh, when a taxpayer is fraudulently in cahoots with their accountant, who tells them to take deductions that they are not able to tell, and distinguish that from instances where it was just innocent reliance on an accountant. I don't have enough time to go through all the reasons and satisfy you know, everyone's urge to figure out why those things didn't happen. But it does say something, potentially about the system, potentially about the limits of the law, potentially about ways in which really powerful uh, and privileged and wealthy people are able to immunize themselves from accountability. But I think, I think those are good questions and could, could continue to be asked. Thank you.
And to button that and this conversation, I just want to quote how Preet ends the book as well, because you say the law is an amazing tool, but it has its limits. Good people, on the other hand, don't have limits. So keep that in mind. Thank you so much. Thanks, for everybody. Us. Thanks very much. Happy Passover. Happy Easter, everyone. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.